Good morning again, family. If you have a Bible, open it to the book of Joel. I'm going to make two comments there. Number one, as I get my hair cut every couple weeks, my receding hairline makes me envy Nick's hair. I'll say that to start with. What a, what a head of hair there. That was pretty impressive. <laughs> Secondly, there is no well in the vine tonight. Okay, it says there's well in the vine tonight. Well in the vine will not be happening tonight. So you'll be at home with family. So enjoy that this evening. I do want to take a moment and say a few words reflecting on Pastor Bob's prayer as we begin this morning. Um, we do, humbly, uh, join our voices with many today. Um, And really countless others who will be able now to have the opportunity to speak with their voice uh, through the gift of life. Um, And giving, we want to give God glory for his providential hand in the historic decision that took place last Friday in the Supreme Court. As Christians we ought to humbly, that word's important, humbly um, celebrate this decision. And overturning Roe versus Wade of 1973, 10 years before I was even born really taking the federal right, as it was called, to abortion away and removing the question and sending it back to the states. And while we humbly celebrate this, as Pastor Bob alluded to, we also mourn mourn this because our state is already proposing 14 new bills meant to further expand and simplify the process for so many women. Um, And I want to say this, though the debate is loud, the, the debate is complicated. For someone to say it's not is... Is not honest. Um, as the people of God, we cannot lose sight of the truth that remains at the center of it. That every human life is made in the image of God. And therefore, bears the mark of intrinsic worth and value. We don't get to decide that. That's been decided by our Creator. And this includes every precious child's life and every suffering mother who finds themselves in such a bad situation. Both. And I want to say this to you as a pastor. The culture attacks us on that very divide. At that very point, by saying that our fight for justice for the unborn means the disregard for the rights and the well-being of women. That's just a lie. That's false. Um, And as God's people, we we must uh, remain determined to reject such a lie. Look, out of all people, uh, we know what sin is. We know its power. We know its ploys. We know the reality of it. But we are also a people who know grace. Who know the mercy, the forgiveness, and the restorative power of the gospel. So it's possible. We know this because we know our own hearts. It's possible uh, to both call something wrong, sinful, unjust, and at the same time extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to the gospel of Christ. We're people who can do that. We must do that. We must continue to be a people of truth, but a people of grace. So we do stand and we labor for the protection and the right of all human life. From tomb, from womb to the tomb as God's people. Amen? Let me pray one more time. God, we do love you. We thank you. It's a joy to know you and walk with you. Uh, Lord, we live in a complicated world because sin's complicated. Um, But God, we want to be people of truth, people of grace. Uh, So God, out of all people, we should be the most honest, the most humble people approaching a subject like this. Not the arrogant, not the proud, but the humble. If not for the grace of God, we would be overcome by sin as well. And God, I know an issue like abortion doesn't just, it's not just a concept that's outside of the walls of this church. I know it's a reality for many within this body. So God, we pray the comfort of Christ, the assurance of His grace would wash over us even today. God, we pray that we would be a a church, a people that stand for truth, but stand and are willing to make sacrifices to protect women and children. Put the best interests of others before ourselves. Stand for truth. God, I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful for these brothers and sisters. And we do celebrate in one sense. You know, in a real sense, we celebrate 
um, what took in place this last week. But we do that recognizing, uh, Lord, there's so much we have to put our hands to and continue to labor. I thank you for many, even in our church, who labor pregnancy centers in different places around our city. And Lord, help us to be faithful, to continue to support, to labor, to sacrifice for the good of life. For we know the one who is the author of life and the one who is the redeemer of life itself. In Jesus' name. Joel chapter 3 is where we will be. Everyone has heard people quarreling with those really famous words C.S. Lewis opened his 1944 BBC radio broadcast in London as, as Nazi bombs were being dropped on the city. And His talk that evening, which turned into the book Mere Christianity, his talk that evening was titled Right and Wrong, A Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. And during this time, with unthinkable cruelty and evil taking place in London and really all around the world, many were questioning the very existence of God. It's the common question that's been a real question for generations. I use the word classic in the in, the, in, the, in that sense, the classic argument is that if there is a God, then how is there so much evil and injustice in the world? But Lewis's point, he was pointing out how that line of thinking itself requires the very existence of God. Because what's evident is that from our basic quarrelings about right and wrong, to our moral outrage regarding the injustices of war, All of us possess an innate sense, a longing for things to be right, for justice. Everyone in London was convinced not only were the Nazis' bombs wrong, they were unjust. And Lewis has simply asked the question, but why are they unjust? And the discussion was a very personal one for Lewis. He himself struggled with these same questions before he became a believer. Later in the broadcast, if you're in the book, chapter 5 of Mere Christianity, he says this, quote, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and so unjust. But how had I got the idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I who is supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against him. Of course I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed altogether. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not just that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was in fact full of sense. We do live in a world full of injustice. And yet we also live, each of us, with a longing for justice to prevail. Perhaps not in every sense but particularly in those cases which pertain to us. And the question is why? Is this simply a condition of our society? Is this some sense of herd mentality? Or is it proof that final justice really does exist? Is it proof that an ultimate accounting will in fact take place? What are we to make of the overwhelming evil and injustice which seems to go unchecked in our lives daily? A gunman walks into a school full of innocent children, begins randomly taking precious life, only to go over into the corner, take his own, and leave a lifetime of carnage for families in a community to deal with. What of the Islamic terrorists who systematically rape and pillage young girls? What of the thousands of children shipped throughout our southern border here, forced into sexual slavery in our very nation? What of the nations who were built on redefining, redetermining human life in such a way as to see and use people as mere property for economic gain? What are we to make of these things? What of ultimate justice? 
Will there be any real accounting for all the injustice and the outright cruelty that shapes our world? This final chapter of the book of Joel, the prophet's message in chapter 3, provides us the answer. In chapter 3 this morning, the prophet makes clear the explanation behind the undeniable moral tapestry of the universe, the longing in our soul for justice, is that there is a perfectly just God who stands over all things. And He has fixed the day when He will execute His final justice, when everyone will stand before Him and have to give an account. Joel's message, as we've remembered, came to a difficult time in, a, in the history of Israel. A plague or massive swarm of locusts had devoured the land. God brought great and extreme difficulty upon the people that He might instruct the people concerning the great day of the Lord that is approaching when God will judge sin. And their only hope was to cast themselves upon the mercy of God through honest, broken, and repentance. That's been His message throughout in everything of the prophet's message the destruction of locusts the approaching army the necessity of repentance gets us to chapter three it has all been pointing to the great day of the lord the scene before us this morning is that day and the prophet's the prophet's message is clear and unambiguous and here it is that though god's judgment will be or is certain and severe towards sin. His salvation is sure for those who seek refuge in His Son. Though God's judgment is certain and it is severe towards sin, His salvation is sure for those who seek refuge in His Son. With with 21 verses of prophecy before us this morning, I'm going to have to train our eyes in some specific places so we're not here until dinner time. And I want to put those in three places this morning. We're going to look at the certainty of God's judgment. We're going to look at the severity of it. And we're going to look at the way of escape that He provides. So verse first in verses 1 through 8, we begin with the certainty of God's judgment. Now the introductory phrase in verse 1 makes clear that our text flows directly out of the context from last week, particularly verses 28 to 32. The prophet says, For behold, in those days and at that time, as a clear reference to the time of God's pouring out of His Spirit, which began at Pentecost, following the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and the birth of His church. And this restoration in verse 1, described as the restoring of the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, point not just to Jerusalem and Judah. They point beyond the restoration of Joel's day to a wider restoration of God's people. Yes, beginning with the outpouring of God's Spirit, but coming to culmination on the day of the Lord, when God gathers the nations for a day of reckoning. Now, we must not be confused by the contemporary language Joel uses to describe this future day. This is the way Old Testament prophecy works. His focus is fixed on that final day when the Almighty takes His seat upon His throne to execute His perfect justice upon all nations. And that day is described, though, through contemporary language that the people of His day would understand. In these eight verses, first eight verses, the Lord speaks directly through the prophet, pointing to the certainty of this day. Verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people, my heritage, Israel. Now again, this phrase, the valley of Jehoshaphat, or, as we're going to see it in verse 14, it's going to be called the Valley of Decision two times. It's not meant to point us to a, to a location on the map of God's judgment, but it's meant to point us to the certainty of God's judgment that awaits us, that awaits this world. So the phrase Jehoshaphat simply means God judges. 
And this day comes, this day of judgment that the the Lord's pointing us to, is said to come by the sovereign determining hand of God. He says, I will gather. I will bring them down. The Almighty will humble. He will expose all nations. His valley is meant to depict that. They will be brought down. And the reason for this judgment is spelled out in verses 2 to 6. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations, have divided up my land, have cast lots for my people, have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Now Job presents specific examples here meant to serve as paradigms of sin and injustice in the world. In other words, there's a whole lot the prophet could mention if he was trying to mention all the sin and all the injustice. He doesn't list every injustice he knew about or everything that calls for God's accounting. Instead, he lists very familiar sins known to his context which serve as paradigms for all humanity. And because they were done to God's people, they're done to God himself. And again, given the future orientation of this judgment, it would be a mistake to limit this to God's people in the Old Covenant. This includes the New Covenant church as well. God's people have always been His heritage, as the text says. His possession set apart for His glory and His saving purposes in the world. And those purposes were tied to a specific place in the Old Testament. A land in the Old Covenant. Which the nations, he says here, are guilty of ravaging. They have scattered His people. They divided up his land, the text says. But not only did they ravage the land, they dishonored his people. They cast lots for them, treating them as mere chattel, bargaining boys for prostitutes and girls for wine to be consumed. The charge is human life being treated as commodity, product used for the purpose of gratifying self-seeking pleasure. All human beings, the Bible says, are made in the image and likeness of God, marked with intrinsic value and worth. From the moment of conception to final breath, humanity has no right. Humanity has no authority to decide anything different. And as God's creation made in His image, God calls us to steward the rest of creation by responsibly ruling over and having dominion over His creation. But instead of stewarding creation, history is replete with us using creation and especially other human beings to satisfy our lustful passions and seek after power and devious desires. And God is here leveling charges against His creatures. In verse 4, the prophet calls out two neighboring nations, Tyre and Sidon, which if you read the Bible, they prove to be constant threats to Israel. They were the cruel Philistines, whose main port cities listed here served as chief trading post, extending their evil market far beyond Israel. And the Lord asked some piercing questions of them. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the nations of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? Second question expresses a level of surprise that these nations would constantly see fit to attack God's people. Saying again the connection between his people and himself. And then the Lord responds with something of a play on words here in verse 4. If you are paying me back, I'm going to pay you back. I will return your payment upon your own head simply and swiftly and speedily. This word pay back is from the same word from last week. In reference to God paying back or restoring the people. What was a positive statement of restoration last week. Is here, it, here is of an entirely different kind this morning. God will pay back the nations through retribution on their own heads. He further explains, For you have taken my silver and my gold, notice the possessives here, and have carried my rich treasures away into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and daughters in the hands of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the the Sabians, to the nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. History's clear. You don't have to look very far on on the slave trade between the 
Mediterranean cities and the Greeks. One author describes it as widespread, common, appalling, and culpable. And as has been the case throughout history, seacoasts have often served as slave ports from Sidon to South London to South Carolina. And God promises to do to the Philistines what He will do to all nations. Return their wickedness upon their own head. Do you see what God is doing here? The Lord is focusing on Israel's greatest enemies for the purpose of opening our eyes to the nature and certainty of His full, final, and just judgment for sin. Brothers and sisters, we sacrifice our kids and our nation for far less than prostitutes and wine. We sacrifice our kids and our seniors in the West for so-called autonomy, personal freedom, simply to escape responsibility or that modernized phrase that we tend to use, a better quality of life. And oh yes, we have outlawed chattel slavery from our land. But it's estimated around 50,000 young boys and women are forced into sexual slavery in our nation every year. San Diego serving as the apex of it. And all of it's fueled by a pornographic culture which invades our computer screens and the iPhones in our pockets. What is ultimately wrong with this world? When you watch the news, talk to classmates, co-workers, neighbors, what's the answer we hear? Is our problem merely economic? Would the evil in our world subside? Would we achieve a perfectly fair and equal economic place? Is it political? Washington continues to gain power while ordinary people suffer for sure. Is it the family? Too many single parents? No stable role models in the home? Maybe education? Brothers and sisters, while there is most certainly a level of truth in each of those explanations, they all fail to adequately address the question all at the exact same point. All of them present the problem as being merely structural. Outside of us. So the solution is something like a car out of alignment. Like a bone that's been broken. If we just, you know, we just need a bit of fine tuning. A little structural repair. And things will be fine. Things will all be fixed. But the Bible is clear. No matter how important structural issues are, and they are. The real issue is not structural. It's moral. The problem is not out there. It's in here. Our most pressing problem is sin. It's falling short of God's standard. It's rebelling against His law. Sin is what has messed us all up. And sin is that which in turn corrupts, yes, the structures of our society. We live in a culture where sin no longer makes sense. Or maybe we should say at least we don't want it to. Sin is shielded from our moral imagination because God is stiff-armed. But we all know evil exists. Or we can clearly identify the shooting in Uvalde as evil. We can clearly call the child pornographer evil for how he preys upon and exploits children. We can do that. It's convenient to call things evil because we can, ex we can express our, our moral outrage at them without setting them against any type of standard. But beloved, the presence of evil demands sin. The difference between calling something evil and sinful is that while both describe what is horrific and heinous, sin understands what's evil in relationship to God. And the truth of the Bible is this, family. 
your sin, my sin, is not just wrong. It is evil. And it's evil because of whom we have committed it against. It's evil because we have committed it against a holy and righteous creator of the universe. And because of those two things, the evil of our sin and the holy and righteousness of God, His judgment, His judgment is certain. And though we might not like that emotionally, we should like it as a necessity of our world. The inescapable moral tapestry of our world that we so desire, that we so long to see things done, demands it. You see, being a Christian requires more than us being able to answer the question, what's wrong with the world today? It requires us... It requires us being able to do more than identify evil and injustice of the world. It demands me, it demands you answering the question, what is ultimately wrong with you? With me? Being a Christian is not about having a clear moral vision with what's wrong with our society. Or really anybody else for that. It's about having a clear moral vision of what's wrong with me. What's wrong with you? It's honestly dealing with the seriousness of sin. And God's certain and severe judgment necessarily must respond to both. Which brings us to verse 9. And the severity of God's judgment. So in response to this, in verses 9 to 16, the the Lord offers... We can say a a strangely sarcastic call to the nations to take up arms. To prepare themselves for a battle. He says, proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up your mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords. And your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come. All you surrounding nations. And gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up. And come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will will sit to judge. All the surrounding nations. The Lord issues here a, a sovereign summons. It's not kind of a. It's not a call that they can decide whether the nations are going to come or not. It's a sovereign call, a summons for the nations to dress themselves for battle, a battle that is unavoidable. No deliberation will be allowed. Every nation, all humanity, is sovereignly summoned here to come and bring their best. All nations are to stir themselves up, a clear a battle call there, to meet the Lord in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Why? Because the day of the Lord's judgment has come. Notice in verse 13, the, image, the imagery shifts from military to agricultural there. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of, de- of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Now last week I mentioned um, probably the most familiar verse in the book of Joel was the verse from last week, God restoring the years of the, that the locust has eaten. If people haven't, don't know much about the book of Joel, typically that's a verse that we might know. Um, but I think the most popular image is found in verse 14, through this description of the valley of decision. If you've heard a sermon from the book of Joel, there's probably a... There's probably a uh, it's probably likely that you've heard one centered around this image here. That's the way I've often heard Joel preach, was this valley of decision. And yet, what I've experienced is the tendency is to speak of this wrongly. Putting emphasis upon you and I making a decision. That's not what's being communicated here at all. This is the valley of God's judgment. God will be the one making the decision here. There is no decision to be made on our, point, on our part at this point. God will decide. The harvest is ripe for the sickle. 
The winepress is full, the vats overflow with evil, as multitudes upon multitudes are summoned to stand before the Lord, to hear His final decision. And this day is described in terrifying language, as if creation itself seems to want to hide. It says the sun and the moon dim their light. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord God Almighty roars like a lion. He utters His voice, which causes the heavens and the earth to quake, the text says. It's been said, modern man, if we were to observe it, is betting his eternal destiny that there is no final judgment. And that is a terribly tragic, fatal bet. The holiness and righteousness of God demand He execute His perfect justice. God will judge the world. And His eternal purpose for history will be fully, finally revealed on that day. The Bible is not shy about this day, brothers and sisters. The book of Romans identifies it as the day of God's wrath. Jude refers to it as the judgment of the great day in Jude 6. Acts chapter 17, Paul preaching, says that God has fixed the day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. This day is approaching in which God will hold court. All humanity will stand on trial before Him. Revelation 20 speaks of this day when the the real supreme court of the universe will speak. And there will be no appeal process. On that day, the curtain will be pulled back. Here's the reality. Perfect holiness. Perfect righteousness. And complete omniscience will execute divine justice for sin. Perfect holiness. And all-knowing will execute justice. All sin, all wickedness, and all rebellion in this world. It's a scary thing to be exposed in life. But no matter how much someone knows us in this life, there are things we can hide. The terrifying reality of this day is that the one who knows all things, every thought, every action, there's not a moment that he doesn't know. He will lay them out before us and he will execute his judgment. The evidence will be perfectly and fully presented by an omniscient, all-wise God Himself. No rebuttal will be allowed. No defense will be provided. And on that day, zero grace will be offered. There will be no miscarriage of justice on that final day. God will judge. Everything done in secret will be brought to light. Beloved, the ploy of the enemy which will sadly prove successful for many people, is to inoculate us to this truth. That there is no such thing as a final day. That the, the, the constant ticking of the clock, the way we feel we're sovereign over our lives and we make our plans and make our decisions and determine our life, Satan wants to use that ploy to inoculate us to the fact that this day is coming. Day by day goes by, tick by tick, with injustice prevailing, prevailing Seemingly, and our ability to live in our sin without any real consequences, we think. Over time, we rationalize this day away as if it's never coming. But the undeniable moral reality of the world hangs on it. It testifies to it. This final day is certain, and it will be severe. But there is a way of escape for God's people. And I want you to notice, in verse 16, the book of Joel has been serious. It's been difficult. It's not a book you're going to read on somebody's birthday. But the prophet ends on a note of hope and comfort. Joel's message has been a wake-up call. But its primary purpose is for its people to find refuge in the Lord. God will save and deliver His people. 
The Lord provides a way of escape, is Joel's message. Though God's judgment is certain and severe, his salvation is sure for his people. What does it mean to be God's people? What made them to be his special inheritance? Was it because of something good or special in them? Deuteronomy 7 tells us, The Lord our God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's what the Lord says of Israel. But He says it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. You were, in fact, fewest of all the peoples. Why did He choose them? But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. Very important, we see in the book of Joel, the only difference between the nations and Israel is one thing. What was that? They repented. They repented. Chapter 2. That's the only difference in the book of Joel. The people repented. Because Israel proved time and time again, just like us, to be no different than the nations. Deserving the same just judgment for their sin and rebellion. They were the people of God, as we are the people of God, by the grace of God, period. To be the people of God is to know and embrace the salvation that God offers. That is the conclusion of the prophet's message here. And he leaves us with what I see as two aspects of God's salvation we need to consider. Somewhat three, we'll call it two. First... God Himself is the source of our salvation. Everything in this final chapter, and might we say the entire book pivots on a single three-letter word in verse 16. Look at it. It's that little three-letter word, but. The Lord roars from Zion, utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. This truth has been demonstrated time and time again throughout the entire history of God's salvation in the Bible. When the angel of death passed through the land in Egypt, the only place of refuge and security was under the covering that the Lord provided. When the people fled from slavery in Egypt, approaching the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army barreling down on them, the Lord proved Himself to be their source of salvation. When there was no place to run because the locusts had swallowed up the land, God proved to be the people's place of refuge and strength. So the prophet is saying here, he's pointing to the, he's pointing, his point is clear that on that day, the great day of reckoning, when God summons humanity before him to execute his just judgment, there will again be only one place to hide in the refuge and the stronghold of the Lord. Salvation, brothers and sisters, is of the Lord. If not for these three simple but profound letters attached to the activity of God, there would be no safe place to stand on that day. There'd be no stronghold to rely upon and no refuge to hide under. This is, in fact, the very message of the Bible. This is the message of the gospel. Romans 5, 7, Paul reminds us how one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. Later in one of the most descriptive passages in the New Testament, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, defines the source of our salvation when he writes, Of all of us, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were living in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out the desires of our hearts and our minds. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse, chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God is the source of our salvation. He's also the substance of our salvation. He says here, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion. My holy mountain in Jerusalem shall be holy. 
Strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountain shall drip sweet wine. The hills shall flow with milk. All the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Sittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, but I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. God's people shall forever be holy. But they will forever be holy because the holy God shall forever dwell with them. He's the substance of our salvation. By this description of God dwelling with His people, which Joel ends with here, he is pointing us really to the main storyline of the Bible. And he's pointing us ultimately to the person and work of Jesus. The Bible begins with God dwelling with His people. He created this world and put humanity at the center of it that He might dwell with us. That we might enjoy His presence for all eternity. But our first parents sabotaged that reality by rebelling in their sin. And we testify that they're our parents because we choose to sin. And rather than Obeying God's law, they broke God's law. And by so doing, they ruptured the very creative order that God had set in place. Intimate fellowship with God. His dwelling with His people was lost and they were removed from the garden. And though God would have been perfectly just to wipe His hands clean of us, leave humanity to ourselves, God chose grace. By pursuing a particular people, And entering into a covenant relationship with Israel that his presence might be extended to all peoples. He gave Israel his word. And he gave them a means of worshiping him that again he might dwell with his people. But sin proved too much. Israel refused to live in covenant faithfulness to their God. The story of the Old Testament is one long, slow descent. Following the days of Joel, Israel would be exiled from the land. And the temple, the very place where God's presence was to dwell among His people, would be decimated and destroyed. And again, though God would have been perfectly just to leave us to ourselves, He again responded in grace. He sent His Word again to us. But this time, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Christ. In Jesus, we behold His glory. Glory as of the only Son sent by the Father, full of grace and truth. And God would not only dwell with us in the person of His Son, He would secure His eternal dwelling with us by placing the certainty and the severity of His judgment due us upon Jesus. On the cross, Jesus endured. The justice, the accounting, we deserved in our place. He was pierced not for His transgressions, but ours. He was crushed not for His iniquities, but the iniquities of us all who trust in Him. By His stripes we are forgiven. By His wounds we are healed. The source of our salvation is Jesus. See, Jesus did not seek refuge. He said, I could call a thousand angels, a myriad of angels right now, and rescue me from this. told Peter, put your sword back in. I must go to the cross, that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Because Jesus didn't seek refuge, because he endured the cross on our behalf, he made a way, he made a place of refuge for us to hide in him on that day. For all who find refuge in Jesus, on that final day, we will enter into our full reward and have the thirst for true satisfaction that we all long for, forever quenched. That's what he's saying in verse 18. Joe, look at it. The prophet points us to a day. And in that day, 
The mountains shall drip sweet wine. The hills shall flow with milk. Stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. The water of the valley of Sittim. What day is that day the prophet is pointing us to? He's pointing us to that day that the apostle John saw. When the fullness of our satisfying reward comes to fruition in Jesus. Revelation chapter 1. Prophet John was given a vision of heaven. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Beginning and the end. Listen to what he says here. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this, in, this heritage. What's the heritage? I will be his God. He will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murders, the sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Every one of us in this room are in verse 8. The question is, have we left verse 8? There's not, a, there's not an issue where God's going to look out over us and say, look at my life lived and look at these people's life lived and say, oh, Pastor Jimmy, he's not in verse 8. He did pretty good. No, we're all in verse 8. We're all cowardly. We're all faithless. We're all detestable. We're all murderers. We're all sexually immoral. All of us deserve a portion in the lake of fire that burns forever. The question is not, are we in verse 8? The question is, have we found refuge in the Lord? Have we found refuge in Christ? Have we placed faith in Him? Are we waiting, betting the day? Is there going to be a final judgment? We're going to stand before the Lord and have to endure His judgment? Are we trusting in the fact that someone has already endured His his judgment for us on the cross? God's judgment will be certain and severe towards sin. That is the message of the Bible. It says with equal force, His salvation is sure for those who seek refuge in His Son. Are you, have you sought refuge in Jesus this morning? If not, why not? Don't play with your life. Don't play with sin. Judgment is real. And Christ's message of salvation is offered to you today. How do we become the people of God? The book of Joel tells us. Repent. What makes us the people of God? Not that we're not sinners. We're aware of our sin. We're aware of the seriousness of our sin. We've confessed it to the Lord and we continually confess it to the Lord. So as we leave the book of Joel, we can leave leave with this. Number one, what should we do as the people of God? Repent. Secondly, rest in the grace and mercy of God. We miss the point if we read passages like this as believers and say, those aren't important, it's not dealing with me. No. We read of the judgment of God, the severity of it, the certainty of it. It should lead us to say, thank you, God, for the grace and mercy of Christ. Because if not for him, so was I. So we repent. We rest in the grace of God. And thirdly, we should live in light of life's conclusion. This is the final chapter. But biblically speaking, it's the final chapter That determines the next chapter for eternity. 
based upon this final chapter, we will all spend eternity somewhere. For Christians, it's the conclusion. It's the last chapter of the best book ever, which begins and goes on forever. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For anyone who does not know Christ, take heed this morning. Be careful this morning. God's judgment is sure. It is severe. Choose His Son. Father, we do love You. We do thank You for this rich, rich little book. I thank You, Lord, You brought us through it these four weeks. It was challenging. but It was beautiful. Thank You for it. And thank you for it because through this book we've been able to gaze upon you, see who you are. We thank you, Lord, for the gift that Jesus is to us. And God, we pray today that for those of us who are believers, our affection would be greater for Jesus. We would see again how foolish it is to try to find our hope, our satisfaction, anything less than God alone. And then God, I pray that you would remind us again of the, the seriousness of life. There is a conclusion. Help us to live today in light of it. Make us serious as the people of God. Remind us of how important it is to share the gospel. Remind us how important it is to live the gospel. Remind us how important it is to be the church of Jesus Christ in this world today. And God, as we sing here and finish today, help us to continue to make sure our feet are planted firmly in the one place where there's refuge. And the Lord Jesus. His name we pray.